Today I'm going to be uh, preaching uh, what is a very challenging message because of the subject matter. I'm going to be preaching on the unpardonable sin. And I want to begin by reading our text, Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called unto them and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. Heavenly Father, today we're going to wrestle with a difficult question And we need you to help us to understand what the truth is. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to be able to get a hold of this truth today. And for every individual in here to understand just how important it is for us to yield to the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts and our lives, His conviction in our hearts, that, Lord, we might be right with You and that You would be glorified through us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can God forgive every sin? is really the question that we are considering today. And the truest answer is, yes, God can forgive every sin, but He will not forgive every sin. You see, rather than universally forgiving every sin, God has chosen to forgive the sins of those who respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction with repentance. That is a very important doctrine because there are those who believe in universal salvation. They believe that because Jesus died on the cross, everybody is saved, whether they like it or not. Essentially, they are saying that God has already forgiven everyone of everything. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that forgiveness is universally available, but it is not universally distributed. There's a difference. Understanding that truth is key to understanding then what is commonly termed as the unpardonable. 
unpardonable sin. Now, depending on your background, that may be a term that you've heard more or less throughout your life. Particularly in some circles and some denominations where they do not believe in what we would call eternal security. They believe that you can lose your salvation. They teach that there are unpardonable sins. They say that if you commit this sin or this sin or this sin, that means that you lose your salvation. And then sometimes they take it to the extreme and they say, if you do this, not only do you lose your salvation, you can never get it back. You are condemned for all of eternity. And they would call it the unpardonable sin. And depending on uh, who is teaching um, on that subject, you may hear different uh, opinions about what that sin might be. I knew uh, some people who they believed that drinking alcohol was the unpardonable sin. Um, some committing adultery. Others say it's murder. Murder is the unpardonable sin. And there's a lot of different opinions when you go down that route. But we have read for us this morning the one passage that explains to us what Jesus said was an unpardonable sin. Now, there's some questions that that brings to mind. Does that mean that if someone does this sin, that there is never any hope of forgiveness and that they are condemned to hell for all of eternity irrevocably? That's a conclusion that some might come to. But I think as we look at this in context today, and we see exactly what was going on when Jesus said these words, I think the picture becomes very clear what Jesus was saying when he talked about a sin that would not be forgiven. Notice again verses 28 and 29. Verily I say unto you, all sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation. So according to the words of Jesus here, the unpardonable sin is not stealing, it's not murder, it's not adultery. It is the sin of disregarding the work of the Holy Spirit. Now the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin of righteousness and of judgment to point out to the lost especially that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. And if a person will not respond to that convicting work of the Holy Spirit with repentance, then they will not be forgiven. Forgiveness will always be available to those who repent, but until a sinner repents of their sin, they remain lost. And so it boils down to this simple truth that everyone must repent of their sin and accept Christ as their Savior in order to have the forgiveness of sins. Let's notice what's going on in this chapter. Uh, First of all, um, in verses 22 and following, we have the, the blasphemy that occurs here. Jesus has been ministering for some time, and in the course of His ministry, He has delivered some who were possessed by demons. And so he has cast devils out of certain individuals. And there was a group of people known as the scribes that were introduced to in verse 22. The scribes were a class of religious professionals. They were considered experts in the Old Testament because their primary job was to literally copy the Bible by hand. 
And so they spent a lot of time reading and writing copies of Scripture. They became very familiar, and therefore, in a lot of ways, they were experts on what the Bible said. However, it was a situation where you might say they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They oftentimes became so bogged down in minutia that they missed the big picture. And so you'll see during the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the scribes are often in opposition to him. Some of it was theological, a lot of it was political, because they saw him as a challenge to their position as a spiritual authority, a religious authority. And uh, he would often challenge them and, and say things like, you've heard that they've said or hath been said of old, but I say unto you, and he would... He would contradict and he would correct them. And so these scribes, having heard about the ministry of Jesus, they began to spread this rumor that Jesus himself was possessed of a demon. It says in verse 22 that what they were were saying was, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. So they're basically saying two things about Jesus and what he was doing. First of all, they were saying that Jesus was himself possessed of Satan. Basically calling him Satan manifested is what they were doing. But then they were also saying that he was empowered by Satan. They're saying by the prince of the devils, he's casting out devils. In other words, they couldn't deny what Jesus was doing, so they slandered it. They couldn't, they couldn't deny the healing that was taking place and that these people had been delivered from this demonic possession. So they, they made up, and that's literally what they were doing. They were literally making up an explanation for how Jesus could do this. And what they said about Jesus was blasphemous. They were calling God the Son, Satan. They were saying that Jesus was enabled and empowered by the devil himself. I mean, there are a few things that you and I could even imagine that would be more blasphemous than to call Jesus Satan or to say that Jesus was working for Satan or working with Satan. We know that this is not the case for so many reasons. One clear passage that explains that Jesus and the devil are complete opposites would be in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is, is tempted of the devil. There in the wilderness, the devil comes to Jesus and offers him these different solutions to problems, if you will. You're hungry, then why don't you, you know, make these stones bread? Uh, why don't you cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and God will rescue you and everybody will know who you really are. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just, you'll just bow down to me. No need to wait till later. You can have it all now. And every single time Jesus resisted the temptation of Satan and he countered that temptation by quoting scripture. To say that Jesus is Satan or working on the same side as Satan or empowered as Satan to imply that there is any connection whatsoever is really the worst form of blasphemy that we could even think of. So then Jesus calls them together and in verses 23, he begins to point out the fallacy of their arguments. He begins to point out the fallacy of what they're saying. He says in verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? Stop and think about this for a minute. 
If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In verse 25, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Basically, he's saying, really, guys? Really, that's your argument? You're going to say that I'm Satan and I'm casting out Satan and now Satan's having a civil war of some sort here? This makes no sense. If Satan is really the enemy, and he is, he would not be working against himself. He would not be undermining himself. I mean, that's just simple logic. In fact, this, this uh, statement of the Lord Jesus Christ is so self-evident. It's what we might call a truism. I mean, it's just obviously true. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That really, that's become part of, of just common um, everyday language to talk about when there's a division in any particular group, it's always going to lead to demise. Like you see sometimes the bumper stickers that'll have a bulldog's emblem and a gator's emblem on it, and it'll say a house divided. You know what I'm talking about? You know you're headed for trouble. Right, Brother Dean? Yeah, especially when your son-in-law gets involved in that whole thing. And that's just become a part of our, our language today. A house divided against itself cannot stand because that's obvious to all of us, but not to those scribes who are trying to paint Jesus as a demonically possessed and empowered charlatan. So he points out this contradiction here that a kingdom divided can't stand. And then he goes a step further and he he takes what they're trying to use to discredit him and use it to prove that he is who he says he is. He says in verse 26, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. There was a doctrine, I believe it was Reagan who made it popular, a political uh, doctrine, peace through strength. Are you familiar with that term? Peace through strength. Well, that's what Jesus is explaining right here. He says, think about it. Nobody can break into some man's house and steal all his stuff unless he can overpower that man, right? If the man in the house is stronger than the thief breaking in, what's going to happen to the thief? Nothing good, right? <laughs> If he's lucky, he will escape alive. But he's certainly not getting any of the stuff. No, the only way that the thief can break in and steal and spoil the strong man's is if he's stronger than him. Only then can he come in, tie him up, and make him sit in the corner and watch while he carries out all of his valuables. What is Jesus saying here? Why is he bringing this up? Well, again, this is something that you and I... And just in the normal course of events, would acknowledge is true. But think about what's going on here. Jesus is casting out devils. Devils had taken possession of individuals, and Jesus commanded those devils to go, and they did. He spoiled the house, if you will. So, which is stronger, Jesus or Satan? Jesus. That's the obvious implication of what is happening here. And Jesus is pointing this out for a reason. Because the reason that Jesus did all the miracles that he did, whether it was casting out the demons, whether it was feeding the hungry, whether it was healing the sick, no matter what it was, everything that Jesus, every miracle that Jesus did was to prove that he is God the Son. He is the omnipotent, that is all-powerful, 
creator. And so this specific instance proves that Jesus is more powerful than Satan and his demons because Jesus is commanding them and they are obeying. There are other instances in Scripture uh, when Jesus would cast devils out from some. I think of the time that he, uh, uh, he met the, the maniac of Gadara, we call him. He was possessed with, uh, with a, a legion of demons. And, uh, and those demons beseeched him not to cast them out into the abyss, but instead uh, to let them go into the herd of swine. And Jesus said one word. He said one word. He said, go. And you know what happened? They went. And there was no question. There was no, there was no argument. There was no pushback. He said it. They were obligated to go. Why? Because Jesus is the supreme, omnipotent creator God of the universe. That's what this is proving. So the fallacy of their argument here is clear. They're, first of all, they're, they're, they're jumbling up this whole idea of, what, of Satan fighting against Satan. That doesn't make any sense. But then they're missing the major point that by doing this, Jesus is proving that he's not Satan, but he's stronger than Satan. So that brings us then to verses 28 and 29. We've seen the blasphemy. We've seen the fallacy. And now we see the jeopardy. Because Jesus said, verse 29, He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger. Is in danger of eternal damnation. Couple, couple things to notice here about what Jesus has said. First of all, He says that all kinds of sins will be forgiven and all kinds of blasphemies. It's very obvious here that he's communicating that the forgiveness that God offers is extremely broad. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God has not limited his forgiveness to only a small little subset of our sins? Like the rest of them we just would have to deal with on our own, somehow make up for those ourselves? No, he says all sins and all blasphemies, all kinds of sins... You see, to you and to me, we, we grade sin, don't we? You know, we have little sins, we have medium sins, we have really big sins, and then we've got the ones that are just off the charts. And we kind of have this grading of sins in our mind. And the reason we do that, I mean, it's kind of logical because sin does, not all sin has the same degree of consequence. So, you know, uh, going five miles an hour over the speed limit does not have the same degree of consequence as killing someone, all right? And so we say one sin is worse than the other. But the truth is that all sin, all sin in the eyes of God is worthy of death. Jesus is telling us here that All kinds of sins can be forgiven. There is no big sin, little sin. There is no sin that is just so awful and so terrible and so horrible that God can't forgive it. And we need God's forgiveness for all our sins because all of our sins are deserving of death. What did God tell Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, for in the day thou eatest thereof, 
thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. There that universal spiritual principle was first said, first recorded for man. That the penalty for sin is death. It's reiterated all throughout Scripture. Ezekiel says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. So from the little white lie to the serial killer, all sin is deserving of death. And so while we think, well, some sins are really bad, some sins are not as bad, and in terms of consequences that may be true, in the eyes of God... All sin should be punished by death. Did you know that it took just as much of Jesus' death on the cross to forgive that little white lie as it did or as it would take for somebody to be forgiven of adultery or murder? I know that's hard for us to grasp, but that's the truth. The Bible says that He, Jesus, was made sin for us. Not just one kind of sin, but all kinds of sin. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. All sins, He says, shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But then He says... In verse 29, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. Notice his language here. He says, He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost does not ever have forgiveness. It's very carefully worded here because it goes on to say, it is in, but it is in danger of eternal damnation. All kinds of slander and sin is forgivable except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? Why is this the exception in what Jesus is saying? Well, let's go to John, rather, John chapter 16. This is the exception because of what the Holy Spirit's job is. See, prior to this in this conversation, Jesus hasn't even mentioned the Holy Ghost. Now he mentions the Holy Ghost, what we typically would call him the third member of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit. Why does he bring God the Holy Spirit into this conversation? We have to remember the context here. What were they talking about? Jesus casting out devils. What were they saying about it? That, That Jesus was doing it by the power of Satan. They were not realizing or accepting, is probably a better way to say it, the logical conclusion that the Holy Spirit was trying to lead them to. And that logical conclusion was that Jesus is God the Son and therefore Savior of the world. Now in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Verse number 7, John 16 verse 7, Nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away... For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. The Comforter there is another name for the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And when He is come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Okay, verse number 8 
is the Holy Spirit's job description. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell. He reproves. That word means to prove over and over and over again. Prove it and reprove it and re-reprove it is the idea. To simplify the idea, we would say to convince or to convict. He proves to the world three things. There is sin and we are sinners. There is righteousness and Jesus is righteous. And there is judgment if we don't repent of our sin and accept Jesus as our Savior. Notice what he goes on to say, verse 9 and 10. Of sin, because they believe not on me. That's why someone needs to realize they're a sinner. They have not yet accepted Christ as their Savior. And before you will accept a Savior, you need to understand why you need one. If you're just out there swimming in a pool, and somebody runs up and says, Here, grab onto this life vest. Are you going to grab the life vest? Like, life vest? I don't need a life vest. I'm just swimming in the pool here. Right? Are you following me? But if you're out in the middle of a lake, you fell off the boat and the boat left you, it's 300 yards away and you're, you're treading water and you're quickly getting tired, about to drown, and then somebody comes along and says, Here, grab onto this life vest. Now you're going to grab onto the life vest because you realize, I need it. I'm in danger of dying here. And so the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is He convinces the world that they are sinners because they had not yet believed on Jesus. A lost person must understand that they are a sinner. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Bible says very clearly, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And it's not just a matter of, well, we've kind of messed up. But it's a matter of we have broken the law of the eternal God of the universe. And he has said that the penalty for breaking his law is death in hell for all of eternity. That's what the Holy Spirit first convinces the world of. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now what does he mean by this? The Holy Spirit will convince the world of righteousness and He's going to do that because Jesus is leaving. He's not going to be here. What's the connection? Well, as long as Jesus was here on this earth, everybody could see physically in Jesus in the way that He lived His life and hear in the words that He said, they could see perfect righteousness because Jesus Christ, God the Son, is perfectly sinless. But Jesus isn't here anymore. So we read about Him in Scripture, but just reading about Him in Scripture by itself would not be enough if the Holy Spirit did not use that Scripture to convict us that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Why is it so important that He's the righteous one? Because of what He would do for us on the cross. If Jesus Christ was not righteous, then His death on the cross was for His own sake and not ours. You see all that's wrapped up in this? You see why this is so important? That the Holy Spirit convinces us, not only of sin, but of righteousness, that righteousness that is in Christ, because Christ had no sin. He died in our place. Convinces the world of sin and of righteousness. And then thirdly, according to verse 11... Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit not only convinces us that we're sinners, 
and that we need a Savior, but that if we do not accept Christ as our Savior, there is a judgment coming. Jesus refers to the prince of this world. It's referring to Satan. And he's, he's kind of just using Satan as the, as the prime example, as the ultimate example of judgment to come. But he does not in any way mean to imply that Satan's the only one, but rather that Satan and all who follow him will be judged. See, the Bible tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Every one of us is going to stand before God someday. And if you have never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you will stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. And contrary to some popular opinions, that is not the time when your eternal fate will be settled. Your eternal fate is settled before you leave this world. Whether you trust Christ in this life or not determines what happens to you in the future. No, the great white throne judgment is what we might call a sentencing trial. This is simply when you stand before God to hear the sentence for the crimes that you've already been convicted of. And that sentence will be universal. You will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So now we go back to Mark chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ has been doing these miracles. And through these miracles, the Holy Spirit would have been working in the background and in the hearts of people to bring them to a point of conviction, to bring them to the point that they would see, that they would understand that they're a sinner, that Christ is the Savior, and they need to trust Him or else they will face judgment. But these scribes, instead of responding to the Holy Spirit's work through this situation, as Jesus has already pointed out, the logical conclusion would have been to say that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the Savior. They have rejected that, and instead they have believed a lie and said that Jesus is empowered by Satan. And in so doing, not only did they blaspheme, did they slander the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whose job it is to point us to Jesus and say, He's the Savior you need. Accept Him or you will be judged. They were were saying, no, He's actually the devil. And they were blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says, and again in verse number 29, He that shall blaspheme the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. You can never possess forgiveness while you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's job is to bring us to a point of repentance. And if we refuse to repent, we will not be forgiven. Many a lost person has sat under the preaching of the Word of God 
and has had a sense that they could not necessarily understand. But I think Acts 2.37 describes it well when it talks about the people who heard Peter preach. It says that they were pricked in their heart. Many a lost person has felt that pricking in their heart, which was the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that quiet voice saying, this is true, this is right. Jesus is God. You are a sinner. You need to trust Him. Many a lost person has sat under the Word of God being proclaimed either in a formal church service or through the private presentation of the gospel. And they felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit and refused to repent. And because they refused to repent, they left that encounter still a sinner, still lost, still unforgiven. It wasn't because God said, all right, I don't want you to be forgiven, but I will allow you to be forgiven. No, it's because they did not choose to respond to the Holy Spirit's working in their life. The Holy Spirit's job begins in the heart of the unbeliever first. And when a person bows to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repents of their sin and accepts Christ as their Savior, a wonderful thing happens. Not only are they forgiven and saved from their sins, but that Holy Spirit that from the outside was convicting them now takes residence in their heart. The Holy Spirit indwells the heart of the believer. That happens at the exact moment of salvation. You do not need a second blessing to receive the Holy Spirit. All right? The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior. And now He resides in us. And you know what the Holy Spirit is doing now that He is in us? The same thing He was doing when He was outside. He's convincing us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That is His ministry in a nutshell. That ministry also involves comforting and guiding and many other things in that process that the Holy Spirit does. But it all comes back to that one central idea that the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus and says He's the answer. Sin is your problem. The Savior is the answer. Accept it. And as a believer, the Holy Spirit wants to work in your heart continually as well. The Holy Spirit convicts the believer of their sin as well as the unbeliever. Ephesians 4.30 tells, this was written to believers. Paul said, grieve not the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still working in our life. And so there is a very important application to be made of this, this passage from Mark 3 to the unbeliever. But there's also an important application to be made to the believer. Because the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives day in and day out to change us, to be more like Christ. By pointing out the sin that we have in our life, that we might confess it and we might receive the cleansing and forgiveness that 1 John 1 talks about so that we might be continually changed into the image of Christ. And just like a lost person has to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit with repentance, a saved person does as well. When you sit under the preaching of the Word of God or when you are reading through Scripture yourself or when you're just going through your day and the Holy Spirit brings to your mind sins in your life, you have a decision to make. What are you going to do with that? 
Here it is, you're being confronted with your sin. It's being proven to you over and over again. Will you respond with repentance or rebellion? You see, the scribes responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction with rebellion. They said, no, I mean, anybody with half a brain would conclude that Jesus must be more powerful than Satan here, but we're not going to believe that. No, instead, we're going to say that he is Satan or he's empowered by Satan. At least they're working on the same side. They responded with rebellion. Because here's the truth, Christian, that as long as you have sin in your life, unconfessed, that you are not repentant of, your fellowship with God will not be right. That's the simple truth of 1 John 1. We have to walk in the light as He is in the light, and then we have fellowship one with another. And when we have sin in our life, and we don't respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction with repentance, we are allowing that sin to come between us and God. How do we deal with it? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the unpardonable sin. I know we think, well, those are, that's reserved for the Hitlers and the Stalins and all of those wicked people who slaughtered thousands and millions. and those are, That's reserved for the really bad people. But actually, the, the unpardonable sin is much more common than I think we realize. Because it's when you and I refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit with repentance. Until we do that, there will not be forgiveness. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I realize that this is one of those topics that can be kind of difficult to really wrap our minds around. And I've, I've tried to explain it to the best of my ability, to the best of my understanding to you today. And at the very least, I hope you will come away with this idea that when the Holy Spirit is working in your life, you need to respond to Him. If it's sin that He's convicting you of, then you need to respond with repentance. Now, there may be someone here today who has never truly accepted Christ as their Savior in the first place. And there's been times over the years that you felt that pricking in your heart. You felt that, that nudging, if you will, that, that, uh, that sense that you need to accept Jesus. But you know you've never actually done it. And now, even again, the Holy Spirit is convinc- convincing you. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. Because if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you will face judgment. And friend, right now, if that's what's going on in your heart, you have a decision to make. Will you respond to the Holy Spirit with repentance or rebellion? If you respond with rebellion, 
you will walk out of these doors today without God's forgiveness. But if you will respond with repentance, you will confess your sins to God and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior in faith, call upon Him and Him alone to save you, then you will experience the free and full forgiveness of God Almighty. Ephesians 1.7 says of Jesus that in Him we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on the cross to pay your sin debt so that you could be forgiven. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, friend, I want to invite you to do that today. And here's what I would ask. That in the quietness of this moment right now, that you would call out to God and confess your sins and accept Christ. It means you're going to have to pray. It means you're going to have to talk to God. You're going to have to have a conversation with Him. And it may sound something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I know that I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose again for me. And I'm trusting Him and Him alone to save me from my sins. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. And if you do that, you know what the Bible says? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.